Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Please visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can download the playlist of all the episodes. We also invite you to join our podcast discussion club. And we welcome being asked to speak to your organization or group. Each week, we showcase vital women between the ages of 70 and 100 plus who shatter the myths that we become invisible as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. And today, we're so pleased to talk with Dr. Suzanne Dumbleton, age 78, a resident of Chicago. You know, I've known Suzanne since she was my dean at the Innovative Adult Focused School for New Learning at DePaul University. And just to remind folks that Gail is a graduate of our Master's in Applied Professional Studies, MAPS program. So Suzanne might describe her life trajectory as taking advantage of life's privileges and giving back by opening opportunities for others and addressing inequity. She was raised in New York, one of five girls in a close-knit Irish Catholic family that was education-rich and dollar-poor. Suzanne's path is a melding of the personal and professional. Shortly after completing her master's in English, Suzanne married her former English college English teacher, 14 years her senior. Her second child was born just days after she finished her oral exams and her third shortly before she defended her dissertation. Her husband, Bill, was a devoted hands-on parent and loving partner, such that Suzanne was able to complete her doctorate and launch her academic career. Now, Suzanne entered the field of higher education when very few women were in leadership positions except for student affairs. Suzanne's path to a college presidency, a goal that had been suggested to her when she was an undergraduate, gave way to her commitments to adult and non-traditional students and to family. She has no regrets saying, I wanted a life, not just a career, and that's required me to make choices. Suzanne retired from full-time college work in 2012, at which point Bill became ill. He died at age 88 in 2016. Since then, Suzanne has engaged in her longtime passions, teaching, and as a researcher and writer, advocating for women's and humans' rights, particularly in the power of women as forces in the fight for human rights. Suzanne, welcome to Women Over 70. We look forward to hearing more about your experiences. I'm going to talk with you about kind of three over, overarching themes. Giving back uh, as a key theme throughout your life as a teacher, an academic leader, a writer, parent, life partner. Another theme, what, what do you mean by women can have it all but not all at once? And what's it like to live alone, having spent 50 years with the love of your life? So Suzanne, again, welcome. And let's, let's start with that notion of what you, what you said to me in our, our earlier conversation, women can have it all, but not all at once. What does that mean? And can you give us some examples from your, your life history? 
Um, thank you, Catherine. Uh, thank you, Gail. I'm really delighted to be here with you. I love those podcasts, and I've enjoyed and learned so much from the ones I've listened to. Um, in a way, that statement, uh, women can have it all but not all at once, I realize, as I was preparing for this, is also part of the privilege uh, in which I've lived um, because I've, having had a, um, a kind of flexible direction and um, loving parenting and loving being um, in a, a family and um, also having a, a partner who uh, would pretty much do, had a flexible career himself and would do much to support me, um, that I could feel relatively patient as I waited for uh, the opportunity to change direction because the trajectory of my career was um, uh, I had finished a master's before we, I got married and then we did begin to have children right away and I was able to continue my doctoral work as the children were born as you heard um, and then I could um, teach part-time I could have one class to teach and then still uh, be at home and take care of the children because they were close in age and um, support my husband's career who's a professor and um, be very much part of higher education and have that um, kind of rich part of my cultural part of my life as well and so I didn't feel driven um, to make my way in a in a in a kind of calendar that other people in other fields might have had so that's when i say privilege it's that the um the choices that were before me were more flexible than the choices um uh, that um people read about in lean in for example mm -hmm. so, so suzanne when you were first teaching what were what were your subject areas well, my field is English, so I was teaching introduction to literature and college writing. And eventually I would teach communication. Um, and I would teach uh, part-time at night school. Um, so I was pretty early acquainted with students who were making their way in a different pattern. Mm -hmm. um, and then I taught at a professional school. I taught a whole group of people who were going to be pharmacists, <laughs> for example. And um, one of the things I learned from all that is that I just love teaching. So for me, the, I also didn't, wasn't driven to be only teaching the best students, the most complex content. Um, uh, at some point, I recognized that I probably wouldn't be teaching medieval literature <laughs> in a research one university. Hmm. Um, and that was fine with me. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, that wasn't a compromise either. Um, um, we know I noted in the introduction that a goal that was you know was suggested to you even when you were an undergraduate that you might be on the path to be a college president. Right. So what what why did people say that about you and um, where did that path take you? So when I was an undergraduate at the University at Albany. Um, I, 
I joined everything. You know, I was in the newspaper and the yearbook and the sorority, and I was on student government. Um, and um, I uh, would be asked to lead freshman orientation, uh, even when I was a sophomore. Uh, mm -hmm. So I just got engaged in the whole life of the campus in a way that was a little bit surprising to me, but it was just fun, you know, and I liked all of the other students that were doing it. Um, I had come up through a very different school system. I come from a small private girls school. Mm. And then there I was suddenly at a, um, a big uh, public institution with mm. um, a much broader range of students than I had been acquainted with before. Um, and so all of the, and you know, this is in the sixties. So that all of those, organizations were very much overseen by administrators. So there was a dean of women, there was a dean of men, mm -hmm. um, and uh, faculty had to be, every organization had to have a faculty mentor. Mm -hmm. Every uh, gathering had to have a faculty chaperone. Mm -hmm. So there were lots of people who were more or less watching me and saying, ah, you know, you could be great at this. And they were thinking, I think, of student personnel work. Mm -hmm. um, that um, and the crossover was much greater now then than it is now because the academic and the student life wasn't quite so distinct. Mm -hmm. you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the dean of women was as much concerned about the academic success of the students as the social safety. So, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, so that they. I think, you know, the, the, the dean of men, for example, had gone to Columbia, and he thought I could just be a great president of Barnard, oh. right? So they had, this, they had these images, and part of it was their sense that there were very few women in the field, uh, but their perspective, so that they, they were all looking for, uh, they were all looking at women's universities, you know, you know, women's mm -hmm. colleges, mm -hmm. because that's where the openings were. So um, I disappointed him greatly by getting married oh. <laughs> before <laughs> I had my dissertation, because at, no, at that time also most women presidents were not married. Mm -hmm. um, True. Because yeah. it, was such a, it was such a career, uh, and there were not too many men that could actually be second have a second career. Yeah, right. So not only did you get married, you, you had children. Right away. Working boom, boom, right boom. away, working <laughs> on your dissertation. Right. <laughs> That's um, your, your child was born. Let's see, you had your dis held your dissertation oral on a Friday and your son was born the next Tuesday, something That's like right. that. That's right, my oral exams, right. <laughs> <laughs> and hey. I was, yeah. <laughs> So I frightened the people on the committee, I think. <laughs> By how you looked? <laughs> <laughs> Not yeah, that they were soft, I have to say, yes. Yeah, Suzanne, uh, this is all wonderful to hear. And I, I'm wondering, did you ever question yourself about continuing on to get your PhD and, and remain in academics? No, it never occurred to me not to. Mm -hmm. Because I, I did find that I loved higher education as a culture. You know, I loved study. I loved teaching. Um, I loved the community that's part of academic life. 
I love the flexibility of it um, and the kind of cons. The, the other thing that happens in higher ed, I think, not necessarily, but it's the available, is people can reinvent themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had the perfect example. My husband's PhD was in Victorian and Romantic British literature. And um, he was happily teaching that. And then he decided he really wanted to know about the Irish literary renaissance and teach that. Mm-hmm. And he had to get a credential for that. Well, so that's when we went off to Ireland and he got a master's in that. So he could actually reconceptualize what he wanted to teach and write about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I always, I think that's also part of the reason I was patient is that I, I somehow believed that it would happen. You know, I could make, I certainly wasn't going to be president of Barnard. Um, and that was okay too, because I was, um, I thought somehow I could, make a life in which I could use the talents that I had, you know, the, the skills and aptitudes and the education I had. Mm-hmm. Because so that's part, that, you know, that links back to that other thing about the kind of driver has always been for me, or not, maybe not always, but certainly from my early 20s, to be of use and to um, use what I had what I'd been given and also what I gained myself. That's, mm-hmm. So um, I know at one point that you, you had held a, 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 you were vice president at, a, at mm-hmm. an institution mm-hmm. and then uh, school for new learning was able to catch you. Right. And you came to DePaul. Mm-hmm. Um, so in what, what ways do you think you were able to use your, your skills and talents and, and commitments within that, that environment? Well, of course, DePaul was just a, a gift to me um, because it so helped, it allowed me to meld so much of what I was, had been doing and was thinking about because um, the mission of, you know, opening access and mm-hmm. uh, providing a really high quality experience um, for people who were being boxed out of so many other opportunities um, was a perfect place for me in the the larger perspective. And then the School for New Learning with its innovation, its its individualization, its, uh, again, goal of opening opportunities. And then I actually landed at the moment when the whole world of higher ed was saying, what we need to do, globalization is, is one of the big challenges, as is um, technology, mm-hmm. uh, especially learning technology. And so too is diversity, making sure that uh, people we're, we're including are feeling included and, um, and are welcomed and you know, that they bring as much as they are receiving as well. So that whole attitude was just when I landed at the college. Mm -hmm. So, and it was a highly entrepreneurial environment at that time. It was all pre, you know, so many of the things that happened um, after the, a couple of the corruption scandals 
uh, not in higher ed, but in, in businesses, uh, changed the way higher ed could work. But the, um, the college really allowed for all kinds of entrepreneurship. And then there was this faculty ready to go. I mean, <laughs> there were people who wanted to do uh, globalization and international, both um, people like Miriam Ben-Yosef, who's been on here, who was mm-hmm. wanting globalization as a mindset um, and, and to allow people in the whole world of business and globalization to rethink uh, what it meant to cross borders. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, I don't, she, she was, became expert at, um, well, women, women entrepreneurs, especially mm-hmm. women entrepreneurs across cultures. Mm-hmm. And then people like David Schallenberger who wanted to do international and people like David Levin who were ready to go with, um, the online learning. Mm-hmm. So um, I became more like a conductor than, a, you know, <laughs> there were these great, and you know, you who had the, um, the master's program up and running with such mm-hmm. uh, autonomy and such creativity. So it was for me a perfect place. And then as I think I had mentioned to earlier, Catherine, I had, when I had, when the, time in my you know we did have a kind of a five-year plan a 10-year plan and one was that I would at one point um, I would my career would become first and Mm -hmm. then Bill would either retire or his career would come second and And when when that happened huh when did that happen and so that happened in like 1988 or 89 when our youngest was off full-time Mm-hmm. And so I didn't feel the need for be so flexible because academic administration, you know, is sixty hour weeks. It, it's mm-hmm. just it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not for someone that needs flexible time. Yep, yep. So, so hmm? I just I, I want there's so much to talk about because um, your your interests are are varied, but they they really do. I think as you had had said, are about the. Uh, the power of women as forces in the fight for human rights. Right. And, and can you talk about how, how you address, how you do that through your, your, uh, your research and your writing and also mm-hmm. your teaching? Yeah. Well, one of the things that uh, as I was shifting, I, I had been uh, at senior administration for uh, 21 years and I wanted to do some, go return to back to teaching. And I wanted to have more time with Bill and, um, so I took a, I had a year in transition and did research, and um, I had, had had done a lot of leadership training. I'd gone to Harvard to a program, I'd gone to Bryn Mawr to a program, I'd gone to Yale to a program, these summer summer programs, and um, so I'd become interested in the field of leadership, and was stunned at how little attention there was. And this is two thousand eight. It's it's like a century ago. There was so little attention to women as mm-hmm. leaders sure. and very little attention to women as leaders for human rights. And here were all of these human rights efforts worldwide and women and children were m- more often than not the, the, the ones who needed the human rights. They were the ones whose rights were being abused. Mm-hmm. And so there were women entrepreneurs in human rights everywhere and, not, and not hardly a word about them. So, and because here's one of the things I learned was that there's the, 
one of the things that women were doing was in a way was um, service in, to alleviate the pain of the abuse of human rights. So that they were on the forefront of, of childcare and education and healthcare. And so they were actually doing the work, but they weren't trying to change the systems, right? I didn't, I wasn't able to see many that were actually trying to change the systems, change the laws, um, change the, the hierarchies and the structures uh, mm -hmm. that were providing the service. Um, and so that I tried to find people who were doing that. And that's where I came on. I came on three people and decided to write a book about these three people and then dove into them. <clears throat> and one of them was Wangari Mathai, the, the environmentalist mm -hmm. in Kenya who created the Greenbelt movement. So she actually created a movement which was to plant trees. And she had hoped mm -hmm. it would go out of Kenya and be um, international. And to some extent it has. She, she unfortunately died much too young. Um, and so I got to meet with her and her staff and mm -hmm. go and visit the Greenbelt where she had, that she had created. Um, and then study her, her strategies. And then Sister Helen Prejean, Dead Man Walking, nun who was so appalled at what she saw. She was essentially thought she'd just take care of prisoners. Uh, and then she was so appalled at what she saw inside the prisons and certainly in the execution chamber that she set out to change it. She focused first on uh, death penalty and that's really where her focus is now. Mm -hmm. But of course, hyper-incarceration, the injustice of the, of the justice system, the racism in the justice system the classism in the justice system. So, so I ended up diving into that. And so I have a pen pal on death row and you know, you don't go into these things without having this uh, side effect. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, I also was studying Aung San Suu Kyi, the human rights leader in Burma, now Myanmar, and had done a, a great deal of work on that. I've been to Burma a couple of times um, when it was dangerous and then when it wasn't so dangerous, but, and never got to meet her. I was almost, I had appointments and everything and they got canceled. Mm. And now of course she's become such a problematic figure um, that um, it, in a way it derailed my project. Cause I had this idea that what I when I looked at their work, there were these four qualities. At first they, this uh, radical empathy that each of them just saw what, you know, they experienced the pain of the people and decided they just couldn't let it stand. But their pain was such that they, it made them really brave. I mean, they were just so courageous. They took on authorities that would, you know, that was really dangerous mm -hmm. what they were doing. Um, and then they created they were strategic in what they were going to do how they could figure out how they would act and then they would act and then they would refuse to stop and so there was that kind of five step theory that i was creating and then um, i have to figure out how on sansuchi fits into that mm -hmm. and see whether i just haven't learned enough it's not easy to learn what's going on there still yeah, yeah. <clears throat> So is that book has that book project become is it still a book project in your vision or are you taking it a different 
repent? It's a good, it's a good question. We should go out to lunch and you should push me on it. <laughs> but <laughs> okay. I, um, because what I started to do was to take pieces of it and do them as op-eds. Mm-hmm. So I've published them and I've given them as talks and I've taught from them. I taught at the Newberry library. And, um, so, uh, uh, until I can reconcile what's happening in Burma, until I can get back there. I've, you know, my, my sources, you know, there are people who took their lives in there. Well, that's extreme, but they could have gone to prison for talking mm-hmm. to me. Wow. Um, and they, so I have a real sense of responsibility mm-hmm. for it and chant them. But they, you know, the story is now people just don't want to go back to jail. People have spent mm-hmm. 15, 20 years of in jail and they just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, I right. understand. Yes. Right. So, so. so you're teaching now, now, well, mm-hmm. your, your husband, your, your husband, Bill became right. ill in 2012 right. and then he died right. in 2016. Right. Um, you've continued your passions, your teaching. I know you're teaching um, at the school um, for, you know, credit. And then right. you're also teaching at Newberry Library. Is that right? Right. Yeah, I love teaching at the Newberry. Um, what do you teach there? So this past summer, so I've taught five courses there over the past few years. Mm-hmm. I taught um, this past summer. I taught a book a course on uh, Little Women. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the book came out, once the movie came out, the book, uh-huh. and I had just a wonderful group of thirteen women. Uh, we had one man, and he left after the first day. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's a much more complicated book than people give it credit for. And then the Greta Gerwig film was such a piece, you know, such a wonderful Mm -hmm. artistic creation. Mm -hmm. And these women, and because it was on Zoom, there were people from all over the country. So, yeah, it was different from the local. uh, I taught a course on Joan of Arc through the plays. um, Mm. Also something I'm fascinated with. I taught a, a course on the three women. Um, trying to remember the other two. Oh, I taught I taught a wonderful course. I mean, the students were great. It was in the fall of 2018, which was is the, was the hundredth anniversary of World War One, and the armistice. And um, so I taught uh, the great. It's, you know, the World War One literature is. Oh, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mostly the British, but some of the American as well. And then a couple of films and the people were great. And it's the whole city of Chicago was doing things so that mm-hmm. people were mm-hmm. coming and saying, let's go to the symphony and let's do this. People were, you know, so it was great. It was really terrific. Are you continuing to teach there? Yeah. So I've just pushed, I've just pr- proposed, in fact, yesterday I just proposed for the spring to do the Joan of Arc course again. Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's an interesting woman. And um, there are um, wonderful plays. There's, a, of course, George Bernard Shaw's play. And then there's a French playwright, Eugène Henri, who has a beautiful play. And then an American, uh, Maxwell Anderson, has a play about her. And then a fantastic film, one of the last silent black and white films, mm. which is mm. so powerful. And then her, um, her history is she's one of the most historically accurate figures in, the, in that whole period because she was subjected to two trials, both of them lasting five months. 
and mm. present were French and English clerics taking it down verbatim. Wow. And those books were found in 1850s. Mm. So it's fun. It's so interesting. You um, have a wide palette. <laughs> I, I do. do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um, so what, is there anything that you still want to do that you're not, not yet doing? Um, oh, of course. I mean, uh, I can't be specific, but the pain in the world at the moment is mm -hmm. just so omnipresent mm -hmm. to me. I mean, the, the needs of children and uh, persons who, against whom discrimination is just rampant and obvious and crippling and unfair. I mean, the, just working with students these last two weeks on the Declaration of Human Rights and the, and, uh, the questions of race. Mm. Uh, and and what is the course, um, Suzanne, that you're teaching now? It's called, uh, it's got three titles because it's the, um, the Liberal Arts in Action. But my theme is the fight for human rights, one woman's crusade. So I do the kind of the fight for human rights as a wonderful theorist about it, Marshall Gans. And then I use Sister Helen Prejean as an mm, example. Mm -hmm. um, and then students choose an issue they want to address and then try to think of a way, because Marshall Gans spells out six steps, right, mm. that you do to change a society. Um, he was a, he was, uh, worked with, um, Cesar Chavez, and then with oh, Martin Luther oh. King. So he analyzes those movements and what makes a movement successful. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, then they look at Helen Prejean in the context of that, and then they think about their own issue, and then they try to create, they think about what they would do. Well, of course, we all should take, all right. of us. Well, but isn't it SNL? I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, actually, I had it approved through the Liberal Studies Council, I'm happy to say. That's great. So in the few minutes we have left, very few, um, you know, I mentioned that your, your, your husband of 50 years mm -hmm. um, passed in 2016. Many of our guests, and I assume listeners, have had um, that experience as well. Mm -hmm. And so what is it, you know, what's it, what's it like now um, that you're living solo? Right. Well, when I was thinking about this question, I realized that so many people have had this kind of experience. And, you know, grief is just brings you to your knees. Uh, and so, uh, and it's not to be minimized or, or uh, taken for granted. And I, in a way, I t took it for granted at first because I thought, well, of course, you know. You know, people lose a spouse all the time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, of course, I'll carry on. <clears throat> so, um, and, you know, I was from a generation or from a family background that you certainly didn't seek help. But when hospice, who had been great with us for the last few months of Bill's life, called again at six months out saying, you know, we do offer bereavement counseling. Mm -hmm. I um, said, you know, I'm going to do that. And... Um, I 
just so fortunate. Again, I, a woman I worked with was just so, so helpful at uh, letting me face what it was and live with it and, and know, you know, build a new life. And um, so between that and then my family, you know, my, my sisters were all, all here and they loved Bill so much, you know, that so that the grief was this mm-hmm. huge thing, you know, his loss was a loss to the, his friends and family, children, uh, so uh, I, was, I was lifted up all that time, too. Uh, people staying uh, and just wonderful friends. Um, and, of course, and one of the things that, the, for me anyway, that the bereavement counselor did was say, you know, you like to write. You want to write. Why don't you keep a journal? And I'd never kept a journal. So, but she said, why don't you write to Bill? Mm-hmm. So that became the, a, an avenue by which I could work things out and kind of talk with him about issues. Because as everybody knows, it, suddenly you're, it isn't just that the person's gone, but the, your conversations are gone. Your decision-making mm-hmm. processes mm-hmm. have to change. Your, um, your, the way you can do things because you're, you're, part, you're part of a, you know, half, you're half of a, of an enterprise. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so entertaining, for example, I said, Oh, well, I'm just going to go back to entertaining. Well, <laughs> um, I had to open up to saying everybody could bring something. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, so, and so would you come early and then help me do this? Because um, I, I did it wrong the first time or two, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, it's making, uh, you know, it is making new life. It's it's carrying on. It's doing um, all you want. And you know, I uh, I am in just kind of constant dialogue with him mm-hmm. because it's part of um, you know part of the way I did thinking for so long. And again, I'm so privileged. You know, I'm so aware and so grateful. I mean. You know, I didn't have to move out of my house. It didn't mm-hmm. impoverish me. The, mm-hmm. the, you know, widowhood as a kind of biblical state uh, was because, uh, you know, women weren't self-sufficient. Right. 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 And so death of a spouse was catastrophic. And it mm-hmm. still is, you know, mm-hmm. for millions around the world. So um, I, I mostly live a life of gratitude uh, and uh, a, a, a hope that somehow I can, um, again, be of use or enrich the lives of other people uh, mm-hmm. and help people confront tough questions and find some good answers. And, um, and then, of course, I have these wonderful children. I have these three wonderful children um, who are... Um, engaged in the world in ways that makes me enormously proud Mm -hmm. and happy and present. So, and all four of my sisters are still uh, all working and kicking and not working, (laughs) you know, but so this network of, you know, we're on the phone every week on on Zoom just to check in because it's, you know, it's hard. It's being alone. Mm-hmm. And then being alone in 
COVID is right. You know, right. It's not easy. So. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for being so candid about that. I, I just think your your experiences and your perspective is it will be will be really helpful to to um, many of our our listeners. And so, is there anything that else you would like to say, Suzanne, before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. I'm so pleased that this this. Um, uh, series exists um, because I think I'm finding it so interesting to connect to the stories and hear the stories. Um, and um, so I'm grateful to you for doing it. Thank you. Uh, life is good. I mean, if, uh, uh, again, that comes from a place of privilege mm -hmm. um, for which I'm enormously grateful uh, that, um, I, I, you know, I feel, I feel very rich. Uh, well, giving back, you know, giving back yeah. is certainly a, a major driver for you, and really appreciate hearing about the, all the various things that you're involved in, and the way you think about things, and the, the, the head and heart are both engaged. For that's very clear. So, Suzanne, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. Good. Thank you, Gail. Yes, I, I, I've been so silent because I'm just enjoying so much listening to you and how you express yourself and the way that you think about the world and the work that you do and the life you've lived. So I thank you, too, for joining us today, Suzanne. And um, listeners, please leave a review wherever you listen to our podcasts and become an active participant in our community through the Facebook group and monthly Zoom gatherings. And see you next week, next Wednesday, yes, next week, on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myth that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com. <laughs>